Open up your Bibles and uh, open to page 716 if you don't have your own with you. If you do, uh, where we're opening is to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verse 41. Um, and if you don't own a Bible, as we share with you pretty much every Sunday, the one in front of you uh, is our gift to you. Every Bible in this building is a gift. Um, I've said that before. A couple of years ago, I said that, and I had just bought this beautiful leather-bound Bible, and I said just off the cuff, if you want my Bible, you can have it, and I had a little eight-year-old boy come up to me after the service and said, Pastor, can I have your Bible? <laughs> and I'm like, not this one. No, I, I was like, yes, and it was so cool. His dad text messaged me like two weeks later. It was bring your own book to school for like reading time, and he didn't tell his dad, but in his backpack, his dad took a picture and text messaged it to me. He brought my gigantic leather Bible that I gave him. And so if you want my Bible, you can have my Bible too. We just want you to have a Bible. Um, but we begin by opening it up to, to Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 41. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover, when he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to their custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. They then began to look for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God, we do thank you for your word. As a parent myself, God, I thank you. This morning as we dive into this topic of parenting that even Jesus' parents made mistakes. That the perfect parent is a myth that none of us are capable of attaining. And so we pray that your grace would be sufficient in our weakness. That you would draw us more into the, the men and women and parents and children of God that you've called us to be when we leave than, than we were when we came. It is in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I, I have to tell you at the beginning, I, this is probably the most nervous I've been of all the, the things we're talking about during this series because I've only been a parent for 10 years and I still have not figured it out. So, so don't look for any wisdom from me, but I'll share with you my mistakes this morning and, and share with you some wisdom from God's word. Now, now we have four children in our home, Melissa and I, and, and we currently have four. I say currently because we are fo a foster family, and so that number has kind of changed over the years, but we're in this interesting season where our, our oldest two are 10 and 8, and our youngest two are 2 
and one. Now, how many people in the room who are parents um, have kids that kind of had a gap like that? Show of hands. I just need to know who to ask questions of later because I need some help. But it's, it's kind of cool in some ways because uh, the older two are kind of exiting a season of parenting while at the same time we're entering that season with the younger two. And, and so I imagine it to be kind of like grandparenting a little bit, right? Like you've got some tricks and, and lessons that you learned with your kids that you can then use with the next generation of kids. And so one thing I'm going to use is, is our boys, when they were just a little bit young, they, they would become afraid of monsters in their closet every once in a while, right? Like every kid goes through that, and they would scream. It was always, Daddy, 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 there's a monster in the closet. And so I did what most parents do. I would stand outside the door and say, Jake, Evan, monsters aren't real. Of course, that never worked. And so I, I told them, there's no monster in your closet, well, they didn't believe that either, and so I decided to get religious about it. You know, we are a Christian family. And so I said, Jesus is bigger than the monster. Now, there are pastor's kids. They know they can't argue with that, but they would look at me as if to say, Dad, we know Jesus is bigger, but you also taught us Jesus lives in our heart, not in our closet where the monster lives. And so one day in this, this clarity of mind that I had in a moment, I decided that the only way that I was going to solve the monster in the closet problem with my kids was that I was going to have to engage with the monster physically. And so, so one night they said, Daddy, Daddy, there's a monster. And instead of telling them, no, there's no such thing, what I did is I burst through their door and I said, where's the monster? And they looked at me like, whoa, Dad. <laughs> The closet! And so I ran over and I opened the closet doors. You know, there's those accordion kind of style doors. And I jumped into the closet and I closed the doors. Their, door, their room is dark, right? And I said, you, I found you. You've been scaring my sons for too long. And then I started like banging and, you know, doing all this stuff. They couldn't see it, but they could hear it. And as soon as I had their slimy, hairy head of this monster in my hand, I, I opened the doors and I went like this, like they're beds over here. They can't see me. It's dark. I open the door. I run through the hall. I run to the front door, open the front door, throw the monster out the front door, slam the door, and say, now stay out while I reach around and open the door a little bit to hit the doorbell to pretend like the monster's trying to get back in. <laughs> now, I, I kid you not, this is what we did. And and mark my words, from that moment on, my kids went from being afraid of monsters to dad, there's a monster. <laughs> it's like the best thing every single night. You know why they changed, though? Because in a moment of clarity, and again, I said I, I don't do this perfectly all the time, but I realized that the only way that I was going to be able to bring peace to my kid's fear was not by standing outside the door. I had to come in. And not just come into the room, but enter into the narrative of their fear. And all it really took, to be honest, was sitting down and remembering that not too long ago, I was eight years old, and I was afraid of monsters. Now, my kids, they're old enough now, I have to ask them permission before I share with you stories like this. And I asked them permission, and they said, that's fine, Dad, but you better tell everybody that we don't really believe in monsters anymore. <laughs> like, they really want you to know that. So if you see them outside of St. John's Kids, you got to let them know that I said that. But today, today's the fifth week in our, our series we're calling the Elephants in the Family Room. We're talking about the myth 
of perfect parenting, because that's what it is. It's, it's a myth. And, and, and what better way to study this than to start with Jesus' own parents and the story of the time that they forgot him, and then they traveled over a day, and then they had to turn around to find him, because if there is anything that brings me peace as an imperfect parent, it's the fact that Jesus himself had parents that struggled just like we do. So give you a little bit of context. The story that we're reading today comes from the Gospel of Luke. And if you're starting to think of things like Christmas, that tells me that you probably have been in church before because this story is usually shared shortly after Christmas because in the narrative in our Bibles, that's when the story is told. As a matter of fact, there's very little that's told about all of Jesus' childhood. So little details that the very few things we do know are quite significant. And so, so I'll just kind of give you an overview in the Gospel of Luke of Jesus' childhood. He was born, right, verse 16. And, and you have the angels and the shepherds and the whole Christmas story we're going to be telling before we know it. And then eight days later, he was circumcised like every Jewish boy. His name was named Jesus. That was verse 21. Then in verse 22, boom, 40 days go by. He's probably cracking his first smiles and his parents present him in the temple. And then we have 12 years that are fast forwarded in just two verses. And I've got them up right here, verses 39 and 40. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was on him. Now, there aren't very many details, right? Those 12 years. But for most of us, especially those of us who are parents, we'd probably be happy if our kids could summarize their childhood the way Jesus was able to summarize his, right? Move back to their hometown, right? Check, that's nice. Uh, children grew happy, healthy, filled with wisdom. That's all wonderful things. But the one part of it that I know I struggle with, and I, I would venture a guess that maybe the parents in this room do too, is the last part, and that's why I underlined it. Say it with me. The grace of God was with him. Now, there may be some of you in this room that could be blessed by more strength in your family. There may be some of you whose kids could use a little bit more wisdom, but I'm guessing that most of us could use more grace. And it turns out, and I, I was fascinated to see this, that the grace was necessary even in Jesus' family. And that's what we're going to learn in this story here. Again, verse 41. Every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. Now, I'll give you just a little bit. This is like this is like, like caravanning with the kids like extraordinaire. This is a 65-mile journey on foot as the crow flies, which it doesn't. That's not how it works. They would take these windy roads, these dirt paths, and they weren't just with their closest family, but their whole extended family, not just their whole extended family, but thousands of their closest friends. Because the Jewish people were called, if they were able-bodied by the law, to come to Jerusalem every year for the Passover. But this year was special for Jesus. Because, see, Jesus is 12 years old, and that's when a boy begins to prepare for his adult place in the Jewish community. And so we read in verse 43, after the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus, 12 years old, 
stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. And when they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I had a bunch of people raise their hand at the 8 o'clock service anyway. Maybe they just needed to get a confession out before the Lord. That's fine. But how many parents here have lost your kids somewhere at some point in your parenting? How many, you know, you guys are like way safer than the 8 o'clock service. <laughs> They're like, my kids are adults now. There's no liability. They're raising their hand, right? Right, but did you think about it. I mean, you're nervous, right? Like, I'm going to point you out. Don't worry, I'm not going to. But think about it. Like, like, have you ever lost your kid even for a couple minutes in Walmart, right? Or the mall or Disney World or the zoo or something, right? Like crazy. And before you judge yourself and before you judge Jesus, let me just give you, or I should say his parents, let me, let me just show you. First of all, you're in good company. Mary and Joseph are in your club. And the way that they would have traveled, see, he was 12 years old. They would have been with a bunch of people from their family. At 12 years old, he should be more than capable of fending for himself with his cousins along with the caravan. But see, Mary and Joseph are good parents, not perfect parents. They're good parents, and they got this parental instinct that kicked in. And so they decided to look for Jesus, and they didn't find him for three days. Like, like, like think about that. Three days. Like, you'll shed years off your life. Like, like terrifying situation. And so when they found him, finally, they had a completely normal human response. And this is where grace is required. Verse 46. After three days, they found Jesus in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. Remember, he's 12. We're so used to the adult Jesus. This is 12-year-old, like entering puberty, Jesus, right here, sitting in the temple courts, asking them questions. Everybody who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. A perfectly normal response, right? Like perfectly normal. We've been looking all over for you. But I underline the place that grace is going to be required. I want you to say that with me, that question. Son, why have you treated us like this? You see what they did there? Son, why have you treated us like this? They got confused by assuming that by Jesus staying behind that he was somehow trying to do something to them. Son, why have you treated us like this? Like, wait a minute, shouldn't this be about the 12-year-old that we thought was left for dead for the last three days? But you've got, instead, a stereotypical parent-child reunion that says, I'm so glad I found you, but when we get back to Nazareth, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> I mean, that's what Mary's saying, right? Son, why have you treated us like this? And I read that, and I go, man, how many times do I do the same thing as a parent? 
Like, how many times have I stood outside my kid's door? When I would stand outside their door and they're afraid of a monster, and I would tell them, the monster's not real. You know the real reason that I did that? It had nothing to do with them. It's the fact that they were interrupting the very precious period of time in every parent's day when their little children go to bed, right? Like, like it's a short period of time, and, and I don't care if it's a thunderstorm. I don't care if the tornado sirens are going. Like, we get mom and dad time, and, and, and on a good day, I would allow myself to be interrupted, but on a bad day, I see them as interrupting me. Son, why have you treated us this way? And so think about your own parenting. Think about your parenting in the past. Think about it in the present. If you're not a parent and, and you want to be a parent someday, think about the kind of parent you want to be. Think about your own parents. When it comes to discipline, when it comes to giving advice, what's your motivation? When your kid acts out in Walmart and you're doling out consequences, when you get home, you're going to be in so much trouble. What's that really about? Is it, is it really fueled by wanting to raise children that don't act out in Walmart when they become adults? Or are you just embarrassed about what all these people, most of which people you don't even know, are going to think about you in that moment? See, our, fo our first foster son, when he was two, he came to us when he was 18 months old. And... Um, he had this habit by the time he turned two of screaming his lungs out whenever we would go to the grocery store or go to Walmart. And some of you, you're like some of you are laughing, and some of you are like, you're the guy I saw? Like, 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 yeah, I remember that from a couple of years ago, right? It was embarrassing, not for him, he didn't care, but it was embarrassing for us. Son, why have you treated us like this? Your child's principal calls and tells you you got to come in and talk to them about something that happened out on the playground and you're angry what's your motivation when you leave work early to be able to go and talk to your kid's teacher or their principal what's your underlying response are you driving with a passion to teach them a lesson that's going to help them become a more productive adult in society or are you just upset that you had to leave work early and the principal is now going to think that you're a bad parent son why have you treated us like this? See, Jesus, now, he interrupted more than just work or the grocery store or bedtime. He wasted three days of travel. Not to mention the anxiety and the worry that had to be on the hearts of his parents and then the relatives that went on right before him and had to wait several more days because now like, you could call or text and say, Joe, we found him, he's safe, right? They were sitting there waiting and praying and afraid. Look at all of this. And meanwhile, he's all just sitting in church. Son, why have you treated us this way? But see, Jesus, up to this point, he had been growing in wisdom and strength and in grace, remember that word, grace. That's the word we're going to hang up on. And it's, it's grace that his parents needed in this moment more than he did. And I don't want you to think of, of him as, as talking back, but it almost sounds like he is in this moment. Verse 49, he, you know, they're ready, to, they're ready to kill him, right? How, how could you do this to us? And we've been looking all over for you. And this is how Jesus responds. 12-year-old Jesus, verse 49. He says, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? And if you're confused, so were they. It says they did not understand what he was saying to them. Even Jesus' own parents were like, I don't know what he's saying. 
Now, the Golden King James Version actually probably does a better job. This, this was originally written in Greek, like the rest of the New Testament. And, and, and actually, the way it translates it there is, is not that he said, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But it's translated, didn't you know that I had to be doing my father's business? That I had to be about my father's affairs? That I had to be doing what my father would be doing? In other words, Jesus says to his parents, if you wondered where I was, why didn't you start thinking about who I am? Why don't you begin by thinking about who I am? Like, like 12 years ago, any parent that's been a parent for 12 years knows that's like yesterday, right? Like, why don't you start by remembering that I am the one whom, when I was born, angels and shepherds visited me. Remember that? Remember the things that were said about me? Remember the wise men? Remember those gifts? They meant something? You know that. Mom, you treasured this stuff up in your heart. Like, like, don't you remember all of this? Don't you remember that I'm the one who came from God who has been foretold by prophets for thousands of years? And if you thought about who I am, then where do you think I would be? <laughs> don't you think I'd be in my father's house of going about my father's business? Why weren't you thinking about me? <laughs> and there's a beautiful passage that might speak into any of our lives who are parents in in, in a very profound way, and, and Paul wasn't talking about parenting, but he was talking about life, and he said this in Philippians 2. He said, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Now, now as parents, it doesn't mean to ignore the fact that you're going to have your own response when your child acts out or does something. You might be angry. You might be embarrassed. And there's actually nothing sinful about that. Don't walk out the door and go, oh man, now I feel bad. There's nothing wrong with that. But that shouldn't be your first motivation as a parent. Shouldn't be your first motivation. For, for a little foster son who, who was two, as I said at the time, what we learned in training, and thank God that we learned this in training, was that the children who come from abusive backgrounds, and he came from an abusive background, at the very, from the very beginning, they can be very timid when they come into your home. And one of the best signs that you can see that, that will tell you that that child is starting to slowly heal from their fear of adults who hurt them is when they feel bold and comfortable enough to do things that they're not supposed to do, like scream in the grocery store. Thanks a lot, right? Good, yay, good job. See, because what it means is they've crossed the threshold. It's an important threshold for a child that's been hurt. They've crossed the threshold that tells them that when they do bad things, the adults around them in their life are not going to hurt them, but they're going to guide them. Now, see, does that mean, though, that, that we accept the screaming in the store? No, of course not. Does that mean that I wasn't still embarrassed? I'm embarrassed telling you the story because I was there. It was embarrassing. To this day, things like that embarrass me. But it's us second. It's them before us. I begin with who they are, not what I want. Our job as foster parents, but our job as any kind of parent is, is to be radically different in our response to our kids than the rest of the world is going to be to them. It's to have a radically different response to them than anywhere else they're going to experience in the world. And that response is one of grace. And the reason why is because it's grace that changes your heart. It's not the law. Law just shows you what you're doing wrong. It's grace that changes your heart. And, and ultimately, any parent would say that, that it's the heart that we want to see changed, right? 
Like as parents, as we look back, I think if we think about it, we would say that, that we're less motivated by whether or not our kids ever make a mistake. We know they're going to make mistakes. What we really are motivated behind is, is making sure they become the men and women that God has designed them to be. And it's grace that's going to make them into those men and women that God has called them to be. It was grace that was required in Jesus' relationship with his parents. And look at how Jesus turned out. I'd say it turned out pretty good, wouldn't you? <laughs> I'd say that's pretty good. And if Jesus' parents needed to use grace, then so do we. And, and so we continue. Verse, verse 51, Luke makes sure we know how this ends, right? He says that Jesus went down, 12-year-old Jesus went down to Nazareth with them, his parents, and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things inside her heart. So she started to get it. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. But I do need to leave you with one important difference between our parenting, our kids, and Jesus' relationship with his parents. In our relationships, parents to children and, and children to parents, in the cosmic eternal scheme of things, we're actually not that much different than our own kids. We're not that much different. See, in Jesus' relationship with his parents, his parents were literally raising the perfect child. <laughs> But that isn't the case for you, and you are not the perfect parent, and your kids are not the perfect children. But the truth is, and the reason I bring this up is because we struggle, parents, I'm talking to you, we struggle with the same things that our kids are struggling with. Now, sure, it might look different. I might not be afraid of, of monsters in the closet anymore, but I am afraid of the future. <laughs> And sometimes my fear of the future is just as irrational as their fear is of the monster in the closet. Or, or I might be afraid of what other people think of me. I mean, sure, I'm not 8 or 12 years old like my sons. I don't, I don't put gel in my hair every morning. Part of that's because, well, it wouldn't help. <laughs> but it's not to say I don't do a lot of other things to try to get people to think highly of me. I may not be getting grades on a report card in this season of my life, but that doesn't mean that there aren't things that I've done that have been defined as procrastination, not doing my best, see work, that if I was getting a grade, that's the grade I would have gotten. Pastor Paul Tripp, and, and if you're interested in going deeper into this message, I'm just, I'm just scratching the surface. He's got some incredible information. Email me, I'll send it to you if, if you're interested, but... I want to share with you a quote by Paul Tripp. He, he says this about parenting. He said, there are few things that you will ever identify in the life of your children that you can't yet find artifacts of in your own life. There are few things that you will ever identify in the life of your children that you can't yet find artifacts of in your own life. That's the gospel in parenting. The playing field is level. What's actually going on is that both people in that conversation desperately need the rescuing grace of Jesus. I look at our foster kids who have come from really hard places, and I, I think to myself, I don't know if I would be any different if that's what I experienced in the first two years of my life. I'd be screaming in the aisle of Walmart too. I look at my kids, the kids that I have had influence on since they were born, and, 
And sometimes I have to say to my wife, Alyssa, especially as our older boys get older and they enter that puberty stage and that, that snotty stage and, and those making mistakes stages where you get called by the principal and I have to look at Alyssa and I go, Liss, I did the same thing when I was his age. <laughs> I don't like it in him because I can see it in myself. And that's true for everyone. And so how do we apply this? And that's what I want to leave you with. How do we apply this? How, no matter how old your kids are, how do you apply this? I'll give you three things. First of all, start, start by looking at your child, no matter what the situation is. Start first by looking at their situation from their perspective before your own. Start by looking at it through their eyes before you look at it through your own eyes. And if you're a parent here this morning who is struggling with your children right now, then I feel called, I have to say this to you right now. Their struggle may be a battle going on inside of them that is less to do with whether or not you are a good parent than what you think. Because your children are their own beings. God has entrusted them into your care. But what they're going through right now may have less to do with whether you've made mistakes as a parent than what you think. There's a very real reason, Scripture tells us, that we are up against the powers and principalities of this dark world. They are their own beings, and it may not have as much to do with you as you think. And you can't help them if you don't first look at it through their eyes. The second thing you can do then is is find a way to enter the situation in with them. Where do I see the same fears? Where do I see the same mistakes? Where do I see the same challenges in my own life? You, you could do that even if your kid is a toddler and they're stealing toys from their sibling. You can say, you know, I have selfish tendencies too. <laughs> like, where do I do that? How can I relate? And you might be thinking now, okay, Tom, but, but won't my kids think I'm weak? <laughs> yeah, they will. <laughs> And you know what? That's okay. Because your job as a parent isn't always to be strong. The truth is you're not. <laughs> you just lie about it sometimes. Trying to make them think you are when you're not. But you're not. And, and it's not your job. <laughs> your job is not to always be the one of strength. Your job as a parent is to point them to the one who is the source of strength. Because he is going to be parenting them for even longer than you are. And they are going to need him more than they need you. And the first step of training them in that is to teach them that you need him too. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians, this is what Jesus said to him, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Put the other person first. Enter in to what they're going through and extend grace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you because the gospel and parenting is the only way we can really parent in a way that invites your Holy Spirit into the hearts of our children, that they might change, that their heart might be replaced as a heart of stone and replaced with a heart of flesh. God, we thank you that, that you model this in your love for us as a good father. You sent your son to, to put our mistakes and shortcomings and sins before your comfort and your distance and the perfection that you had in heaven. 
by coming down and being with us. Not just putting us before you, God, but, but Jesus, you entered into our situation. And you did so in order to be able to extend grace where we could not extend it to ourselves. And so, God, I pray for each parent in this room. I pray for every situation that we're faced with, and I ask you, God, that you would use these opportunities that we have, these limited opportunities as parents to influence our kids, not to feel like we have to have it all together all the time, not to, to never admit to our kids that we're weak because we are, but to show them our weakness, to show them that we struggle with things just like they do, but God, to show them that when we're weak, you're strong. That reminds us that we can't give our kids or anyone in our lives, for that matter, anything we haven't first received ourselves.